0: Hey guys welcome back to another episode of the all things strength and wellness podcast i am your host once again robbie burke and as always we are brought to you by up one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today to get instant access to almost 20 hours of world-class online video strength and conditioning information go to up and help support the show this episode's guest is dan party from dan's plan dan is a entrepreneur and researcher whose life is centered on how to facilitate health behaviors in others dan does research with the psychiatry and behavioral sciences department at stanford and the departments of neurology and endocrinology at Leiden university in the netherlands dan's current research looks at how sleep influences decision making on this episode dan and i discussed what got him interested in sleep research Dan's thoughts on the evolutionary perspective of circadian timing, sleep pressures and weight drives, circadian timing in blind people, the effect of blue light on the skin at night time, sleep restriction and decision making, particularly when it comes to food choices. Dan speaks about Dan's plan. He also speaks about the ideal body weight program he did with Stefan GNA and there was much more discussed throughout the show. Without question guys, this is definitely one of my favorite episodes that I've done so far. And I really, really hope you enjoy it. Great. Okay, Mr. Dan Pardy, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on my podcast. You are someone who I've been dying to get onto the show ever since I actually heard your podcast with Danny Lennon from Sigma Nutrition. I've been delving into your into your work and looking at your work that you've done with Stephen uh, Stephen Gier, uh, and also with the recent uh, podcast with Rob Wolf. Just for the listeners, Dan, who maybe not who maybe aren't too familiar with who you are, just fill us in on your background.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, it's a pleasure to be here too. Thanks Robbie. Um, so I am a, uh, I, I do two different things basically. I am a researcher, so I work, um, with the departments of neurology and endocrinology at Leiden University in the Netherlands and psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford. And, um, I live in Northern California, so I'm mostly at Stanford doing the research, but I collaborate with this international group. Um, and uh, I have a I just feel extraordinarily fortunate because I get to work with a very, very smart group of people there. Um, and so I look at my research looks at how sleep deprivation will influence decision making on food choice. So that's one aspect of what I do. And um, and actually a little bit more about that, I also look at how sleep disorders and sleep disturbance can also affect hormones. So that's that's kind of the totality of my current research. I also am the CEO of a company called Dan's Plan, and this is a company that I started several years ago, uh, and the whole point of Dan's Plan is to try to translate really good information about lifestyle and health into practical tools that can help people be healthy. So. Um, we can talk a little bit more about that, but it's some aspects of quantified self-tracking, some aspects of education, some aspects of just a daily program, uh, some writing and, you know, information about, um, different topics. And so, uh, yeah, that's, those are the two things that I, that I do. And, uh, I love both of them.
0: What got you into, you know, the field of sleep research and, and behavioral science.
1: Total, total luck. Um, and I say luck because I actually do feel really lucky that I, I stumbled into it, but uh, I was working for a genomics company, and the company, not to, you know, to make a long story short, it was an exciting time because the human genome was getting sequenced. There were about 35 companies that were in the space. Everybody was trying to... Kind of have better tools than the other, and they were working with pharmaceutical companies to then sell this genomic information that was annotated. So people could, so these companies that cared about it could have you know better information in their drug development or whatever they were kind of using it for. So that's what I was doing. That company went out of business, as did all other bioinformatics companies that were either they just were kind of dissolved and absorbed into. Uh, you know either to you know pharmaceutical companies or, or um, mostly uh, or or kind of started a different venture but it was uh, it was kind of a, where a situation where science was ahead of the kind of the market and um, so I through a contact at that company I started to work for a company called Orphan Medical and Orphan is um, a really interesting pharmaceutical company they were actually started by the FDA um, or in collaboration with the FDA, to do development um, uh, of drugs for rare disorders. And these are they're called orphan disorders. And an orphan uh, drug, is, is basically, or an orphan population, is one that has less than 200,000 people that are affected by it. And so there's usually a not, not enough financial remuneration in order for a, in a large pharmaceutical company to kind of invest the, the billions of dollars to get a drug developed. And so um, the FDA started to work with orphan medical to say, okay, we're going to give you special, um, you know, we're going to we're going to work with you to kind of cut the fees of developing a drug so that we can develop these medications for this, these rare populations. And so orphan had a drug for narcolepsy, which is a sleep disorder, obviously. And um, I got connected with that company, and I started to work with them. And it was, it was just a, a amazingly interesting right from the start. So I started that in 2002, and eventually um, I uh, started to work in uh, a department called Medical Affairs, and Medical Affairs does scientific support on products after they've been approved. So I was running a research grant. I ran, I ran the research grant function, and then also all scientific publications at the company. And it was a, just an incredible opportunity for me because I was able to correspond with literally the kind of top names thought leaders in sleep from around the world and um because i had developed expertise in
0: Similar, to be honest similar to, to, to myself and the likes of Danny Lenny spoke to kind of again trying to educate people on what they can control to optimise their health in terms of not only just their nutrition but sleep and lifestyle so it's, you know we'll obviously get into the, some of the strategies you put in place because from, from what I've seen from the dance plan what, what I really like about it and also the um, the uh the ideal way program is you seem to just have very simple like one two three steps to follow so i you know i really really like the simplicity of it too because i suppose like anything you know if the simpler you can keep things the better you know
2: yeah it
1: um to a surprising degree and so it's a it's an interesting challenge to both captivate somebody and make them feel like all right yeah these these guys know what they're talking about to then um but then also to make it really simple, um, and, and so people feel motivated to say, "Okay, I want to give this a try." Um, mm. And it's interesting. I, I would say that for our ideal weight program, the pushback that we get a lot, or, or well, sometimes is people saying, "Oh, there's nothing new here," which is absolutely not true. But you know what? What I usually push back and say, "Well, we didn't set out to design something totally new. We actually we set out to design the most effective weight loss program that we could."
2: Yeah, and yeah.
1: that's different um, But sometimes people will look and say Oh well you know You recommend high protein for a part of your diet Well I've heard that before And so no, no, no thank you um, And so it's actually kind of t- it, it, That's more of a behavioral conversation Where people It's, it's you know it, The audience and what they're looking for uh, in, in terms of kind of getting them motivated to try something that they they feel that they haven't tried before because if you feel like you've tried it and it didn't work then you know you might not have the motivation to try it again so it's a it's just an interesting playing field to try to get people to do the right you know to do the right thing and that's not all people of course but it's you know it's it's a fraction of the people that we
0: interact with yeah i, I think uh another thing too and you you did allude to this before in in, in previous interviews i've heard you do is that you know when it comes to for instance just the the sleep aspect of of trying to improve people's sleep it's just the fact that it's such not it's it's so not sexy you know it's it's not a magic pill it's not a magic supplement you know it's just like sleep it's free there's no patent on it and I suppose because the fact that it's it's so not sexy and it's free it's kind of hard to get people to buy into it you know
1: yeah, there's the productization of our of health in our world, where it's like you need a product in order to you know for it to kind of capture your interest and um, and like you said, this is something that is <laughs> to, to do it right. You don't need anything at all except the right information. And mm. then I think actually there are some tools that can
0: oh yeah definitely yeah. help
1: keep you focused. Um, and then there are occasions when certain application of drugs or or the right product can. Um, can help in particular in some situations, we could talk about those in a little bit, yeah. but, but generally a lot of the things that are going to help you get good sleep are just well under your control, you can do them on a day-by-day basis, and I call them the mundane but meaningful, in that they're easy to overlook and forget about, but they have an incredible impact on your health and performance um, on a day-by-day basis, so yeah, that's, uh, that's what we're dealing with, and, and sleep is different than nutrition. You know, nutrition is kind of like an endless—it's just like this endless trough of—you know—you can delve so deep. There's so many, there's so many things there to discuss. Mm. Um, Whereas the science behind sleep is, you know, equally robust and and uh, and fascinating. But the recommendations end up being very simple. And so, um, like I said, it's easy to overlook sometimes. And uh, so that's why I'm very interested in creating tools that just keep you mindful of how you're living day by day. Um, and that's part of the dance plan philosophy is just kind of keeping you focused and and doing the things. It's like, all right, well, now we're going to help you know what to do, and then we're going to help you do them regularly. So it's yeah. it's not this like, well, once you learn it, then that's all you need to do. And that's actually a big that's actually a big issue with um uh, with with behavior change these days. And so I, I last year at the ancestral health symposium, I gave a talk on behavior change. Um, I'll send you a link if you want to link to it in your show notes. But Definitely, yeah. uh, yeah, yeah, and it was the idea is that we, with a lot of things in the in the ancestral wellness space, it's all about giving. You know, there's there's podcasts, there's there's um, you know books that are people writing that people are writing. There's there's blogs, and all of those things are very, very useful. But just giving information is never is not the complete. You're not leveraging all the different things that you can in order to um, help somebody be well. And uh, so, just kind of sending more information at somebody is is isn't kind of the um, you're not you, again, you're not leveraging all the things that you should, so while it's important there's more that you can do, uh, and that's kind of what I'm trying to capitalize
0: on. Yeah, big time now before I, I bombard you with my, my list of questions here, just one question I always like to ask my guests is in terms of influences on you now this doesn't have to be just as a practitioner in the field or as a scientist it can be just on you as a, as a whole person who have who's been the biggest influences on you um in your life?
1: Um, so the biggest influences for me are um, uh, my mentors um, so Jed, Jed I see things as who's made the best contributions and uh, and I go
0: and get my information from them Brilliant stuff Now as I said to you before we came online I've had the likes of Jack Cruz T.S. Wiley Amir Razik on so Circadian Rhythms were obviously a, a big conversation topic with those guys so if any of the listeners has listened to those podcasts they should have a pretty decent Foundation knowledge of you know what it what it, what we mean by circadian rhythms, but maybe just uh, yourself, Dan. When you hear the term circadian rhythm, or when you're explaining it to someone, how would you put it in your own words?
1: Yeah, so circadian rhythms are a repeatable twenty four hour processes. So imagine a sine wave. Close your eyes and picture a sine wave. Of this this process that is ebbing and flowing, and um, that is a good image to think about. a a circadian rhythm, which is every 24 hours there is this process that will wax and wane in terms of its activity. And that process can be both behavior, or not both, but it can range from things like behaviors to cell cycle growth and repair processes to physiological function of certain tissues, interactions of tissues. So um, your body is is primed to do certain things at certain times of day and in order for it to do the right thing at the right time there needs to be a kind of some sort of some some sort of system that is telling that tissue, that cell, the, you know, the, the controller of the behavior it is this time of day, do this activity and that is the circadian system which is controlled by a master clock, it's referred to as a master clock uh, which is a uh, group of cells in the hypothalamus, which is, a, is which is a structure in the brain, and that, and that structure of the hypothalamus has multiple different cell groups, and those cell groups are uh, basically referred to by their location, but you can have the lateral, you know, just to name a few, the lateral hypothalamus, the ventral medial hypothalamus, um, you know, this, is, this, this one is called the um, suprachiasmatic nucleus, yeah. all, all neuroanatomical neuro- terms are usually just Based off of their, they're long, but they're based off of like their, their position and their location to other structures. Mm-hmm. And so the suprachiasmatic nucleus is a nucleus, a group of cells that sits above the optic chiasm, which mm-hmm. is where your optic nerves cross. Um, so, anyway, that's just kind of where it is. But this, this uh, group of cells has a lot of what are called clock genes. Clock genes um, are things like period genes. Um, clock, per one, there's a group of them, and what they do is they are uh, helping to, they are uh, understanding what time of day it is, and so they are receiving signals from the eyes that are looking at things like light intensity and spectrum of light, and depending on that signal primarily, it is affecting the, the transcription and translation that is taking place of the in those genes, and that is then um, kind of affecting what time of day that part of the brain thinks it is. Mm. And so there's two levels of synchronization that is taking place. Your brain with the light-dark cycle of our environment, and then there's uh, a second level of synchronization, which is the master clock, and then all cells in throughout our body. So every cell has a clock in it, and it is synchronizing with the master clock, and that master clock is synchronizing with the light-dark cycle of the environment. Yeah, brilliant. Okay? Yeah, so that's how their circadian rhythms are controlled, and I just try to give you a range of activities that are under control of a circadian pattern, a 24-hour repeatable pattern. And by the way, circadian means approximately 24 hours, and so in the absence of a light cycle, um, certain tissues and cells will maintain their own internal rhythmicity, but it's usually longer than 24 hours. Um, it could be up to thirty hours, and that that in, in, internal rhythm has, is called a tau. That's how it is referred to. And so, um, if you don't get proper light, then what happens is you have kind of an elongated um, pattern for that particular function. And so, uh, when people go and they live in, you know, in, in experimental studies that they put put into a completely light free environment they'll start to maintain a rhythm that is 27 hours, you know, it's, it, their, their biological day is longer than 24-hour period, so, it ha- so we absolutely need light to synchronize and to anchor those rhythms so that they're actually l- aligned with the environment, with, with our actual 24-hour pattern of the day.
0: Can you speak about the circadian rhythm's influences on um, on not just only behavior but the craving for certain types of foods i, I know in ts Wiley's book you know and when i interviewed her she spoke about this idea of you know she kind of looked at it very true through a, a, true through a very evolutionary perspective in that a longer light cycle essentially causes and i don't know if you've heard of this stuff so i mean when when you uh, bump in here you can obviously tell me what you know but her idea was that a longer light cycle like in the summer what that done was it made you produce more serotonin and then made you produce more melatonin later on in night, which causes thing called a prolactin, prolactin spillover, which essentially then decreased your leptin so that you actually were hungrier and create more kind of carbohydrate sweet sweet kind of tasting foods in the summer which was a good thing because that's when carbohydrates grew and the idea was that you'd eat more sugar and put on a little more weight gain to prepare you essentially for the winter you know it was preparation for the winter to have a little more weight gain and then as the dark as darkness increased in the winter and the temperatures became colder and all that you slept more you started to actually use more ketone fuels and stuff like that so her whole her whole thing is the fact now that we have perpetual summer it's you know we've got 24 hours 24 hours seven days a week 365 days a year of artificial light we've heated homes and we've got global transport of carbohydrates we're just in perpetual pre-hibernation mode so her her so basically she's trying to say that circadian rhythm has a massive influences on our food cravings and i know you've done a lot of work in that so would you uh, would you have any similarities to that thought process or where is your research led you there
1: yeah, so my my research is is a bit different um, than hers. So I'll, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll start off by telling you a little bit more about the research that I do, and then I'll circle back and I'll, I'll yeah. talk a little bit about what she's what she's uh, what philosophizing she's about. Um, and so, my, so my research is looking at how acute sleep deprivation. So. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: let's say robbie you need eight hours a night if that was your kind of an average for you where if your body if you if you gave yourself all the all the time that it wanted to get the sleep that it needs and you averaged eight hours
2: yeah, yeah.
1: then um let's say that that's your that's your you are fully sleep sated at that level and if you get less than that then how then how does that affect uh reaction time which is a measure of uh, this kind of uh, bio, you know, alertness central nervous system um, alertness and then does that change the types of choices that you make right because if you yeah, yeah. we make over 200 decisions a day on food and um, a lot of those aren't necessarily taking place at a meal every time that you pass by or see some food um, even if it seems some subconscious you're kind of you're deciding well should I have some of that or not? Um, But even at a meal, you're making a lot of food choices, not only of what you eat, but when, how much to eat, when to stop eating. And that requires some surveillance of your own internal signals of satiety, right? So the signals that are being released by the food um, that, from, you know, within the body that then eventually lead to the feeling of satiety. And if you, we know that if you're eating within a a group of people um, or in any sort of environment where there's a lot of distraction, then it's harder to pay attention to those own internal signals and it's easy to overeat. And so it's actually quite amazing where you put somebody in the right condition and they'll eat 70% more than they would if they were just eating by themselves or in a less distracting environment. And that has to do with, you know, let's say they're eating at a table with... Uh, you know five six other people there's lots of active conversation it's just easy to overeat because you're not paying attention to your body you're focusing on the conversation and then you are focusing a little bit on taste which is very you know very salient and and, uh, and can kind of affect what we do so that's that was my thinking behind doing some of this research which is okay well if you have uh, if you're sleep deprived then we know that that has a reliable impact on uh, on, on our alertness and our ability to focus and attend to a stimuli, then does that would that affect how you eat? Will you will you will you eat more food than you would if you were fully alert? Um, and what I found is that, and I'm, I'm submitting a publication to uh, Public Library of Science very soon, is that when you um, are sleep deprived, and actually it doesn't have to be that great degree of sleep loss. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, you will make different sorts of choices, so you will eat more food that you. And, and this this is the study that I actually had people. I captured at the end what they thought of the different food choices that were available in our study, and they were more likely to eat foods that they rated as low health when they were sleep deprived and they had low alertness. So that's really interesting. If you could think, and it, we didn't show this directly, but this is it shows that when you are um, when you're sleep deprived, you might be more likely to defect from your own standards. So let's say Robbie, you know you care you care about health and wellness and you want to eat general you have an opinion about what health looks like and you and that is your goal to eat in a certain with a certain pattern. You're less likely to be able to comply with your your own standard when you are, are sleep deprived. Now most research on sleep deprivation uh, is, perhaps not ecologically relevant, and what I mean by that is that there are very large uh, degrees of sleep loss. So Same amount of calories that they were taking in prior they are now starting to store fat so they start to have, they have elevated intric, uh, elevated triglycerides they have um uh you know what are the kind of a, they, they start to um have insulin resistance so the body is basically doing this as a protective mechanism in order for them to store fat for the winter yeah and that is a part of a seasonal variation that they experience um, so their body, like, again, the, the systems that are controlling uh, what the body does, partitioning, etc., with calories that are consumed, is now saying, all right, because of this environmental signal, I'm now going to take this the same amount of nutrients that I was consuming before, and I'm going to store them as fat. Now, you know, do, do, does that happen to humans? You know, there's also, you know, we, yeah, there are models of seasonally obese animals like the Syrian hamster. Um it's not as clear if that is happening in humans,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, but it's possible. It just might be hard to detect. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah.
1: yeah. So uh, there's probably there's probably something there. That's all I can say.
2: Yeah,
0: there's no, no, it's great, there. it's great stuff. Uh, and and just for the listeners, uh, r- regards to your research now. And again, I, I've listened to 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 previous interviews and I've, I've read your material, so just for the listeners i just want to summarize so what dan is saying and please correct me if i'm wrong what dan is saying is that a lot of sleep research doesn't have a lot of carryover to practical everyday life to people because it's like these extreme ones where they deprive people of like a whole night's sleep or again four hours of sleep for five nights where dan's research is more like these acute little losses of sleep which is definitely way more realistic to real life and seeing the detriment that that has then on people's behavioral choices would that be more accurate than Dan would it
1: yeah, um, that is right, and it, you know, it's not like that research was bad. It's just,
0: yeah, it's
2: you know,
1: bad. what you do is you build off of it. So that research, all that body of research, was really, really interesting and good. And then you, as a scientist, you say, okay, well, what's the next thing that should be tested given what we know? Yeah, and um, this was there was a kind of a variety, a confluence of different ideas that I that I had, and then I shared with my. You know, my mentorship team that, um, you know, my collaborators that then said, oh, you know, but well, we, we, we mashed on that idea for a bit. Um, and it was to say, okay, so we do know there's an, a body of evidence that shows a variety of cognitive functions are influenced, um, with under sleep deprivation. We know that, uh, food choice is something that is influenced by, be, you know, behavioral choices. And now let's see if this amount of sleep loss can kind of triangulate, we can, triangulate the signal of all this different science and and then look to see is this relevant here this amount of sleep loss with decision making on food so um yeah i'm I'm, uh like i said i'm excited to submit this hopefully in the next
0: couple weeks so we we know then that that any sort of disruption to to the sleep so to the sleep quantity that's that's needed for your specific you know uh biochemical makeup is definitely gonna have an impact on, on your behavior let's say the quantity stays the same but the period of time that you have it changes i know you've written about this too so you know you've also spoke about the the likes of your sleep pressure versus your wake drive and that you know if for some reason that gets disturbed that that also seems to have some negative consequences is that correct
1: um so yeah can you repeat that one more time i'm sorry just
0: sorry, sorry so uh, i actually i'll make it a clear. so if i was to, if my bedtime was say 10 p.m to 6 a.m but then for right. some reason it went to midnight or 1 a.m to 9 a.m so it's the same it was the same amount but the 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 or the the timing of it was different so you know some people go oh yeah but it's still eight hours of sleep but it, it was at a different time period like, is, is that just as detrimental as, say, somebody losing just a half an hour sleep but it was in around the same time?
1: You know, it, I, would, I would say yes. It is just as detrimental. Yeah. Um, now, that's been explored a little bit. Not every question um, okay. that is relevant. So, like, for example, blood glucose regulation, um, you can look at it from just looking at truncated sleep, or you can look at it from a shifting of when sleep is occurring, so the timing of sleep. But um, as I was alluding to earlier with circadian rhythms, is the body is the body is ready to do a certain type of action, in a certain type of day. Yeah. And I'll and I'll talk about Fred uh, a, a really interesting research um, study that was done by Fred Turek or out of his lab, and he's out of uh, Chicago, I believe he's at Northwestern. Um, he did a, uh, an interesting work, a study with mice, where he had um, this, uh, two groups of mice. They were given an isocaloric diet, which means that both groups ate the exact same amount. And they also looked at the amount of energy expenditure that both groups exerted. And they did that by looking at what are called beam breaks. So they have animals in their cage. And then they have uh, these basically like laser beams that are going all across the cage. And so, as the animal moves around the cage, you can then kind of detect how how, how much movement they're undertaking they're undergoing. And that is uh, just a way that um, scientists can evaluate um, activity. And so, what they found is that there was a non-significant difference between the amount of activity that both groups maintained. They had this approximately the same amount of calories. The only difference, though, is they fed one group at a time when they, they're usually sleeping, and then the other group ate at the time when they usually eat. And what they found is that the group that ate during the time when they usually sleep became obese within a six-week period, wow. where the other group did not. Yeah, yeah. Same amount of calories, same amount of activity. One group becomes significantly more overweight than the other group that just gained basically a normal amount of weight given growth mm-hmm. in that period of time. So that led to a a really interesting kind of series of work, or just further investigation um, that there might be something here. And um, we know that it's you know not only are we experiencing less sleep as a society, but we're also experiencing a lot more light. So if you think about it, um, the average sleep time has gone down. You know, in in about in 1960, self-reported time in bed was averaged about eight and a half hours and the, the previous survey, the first survey that could be found was around 1906 and now it was also eight and a half hours of time in bed was, was basically was average what was reported. And since the 1960s it has decreased every time it's been every time it's been studied up to about 2008 and actually it's gone up a little bit since 2008 which is good. But on average most people get six and a half hours of sleep during the week, and then catch up a little bit during the weekend. So get about seven and a half hours. So that's a twenty percent reduction in sleep in the last fifty years, sixty yeah, years. Yeah. That's equivalent to losing one full night of sleep every week. Yeah. Right. So that's that's a lot. Now, why is it, now that's one thing? So we're, we're we're actually getting less sleep, but we're also getting a lot more light and a lot less darkness. So if you think about that time it's not like it's not like well we're just getting less sleep but we're you know we're, we're kind of sitting up writing with our fountain pen by candlelight yeah,
2: yeah
1: right we're sitting in darkness and just kind of chatting you know with uh we're doing whatever um we're we're under we've got we're watching television we are we've got our our lights on in our home we're playing at our on our computers we're playing with our iphones and so, instead of getting up to 14 hours of darkness per day, or 10 hours of darkness, depending on the season, we're pretty much getting, you know, seven, six or seven hours of darkness only, all year round. Mm-hmm. And that itself, we could actually have a darkness deficit in our society, because um, if you think about it, um, melatonin is produced under dim light. So there's it, when the way that melatonin is produced, it, it, there's a process called dim light melatonin onset. Yeah. Where where the brain is reading the signals that the light is getting, and when the tone and the intensity change uh, enough, then it'll it'll trigger through this multi synaptic loop the production of melatonin for the pineal gland. And then once melatonin is produced, it has effects throughout the body. But it'll also then reinforce to the master clock. It basically tells it a message like yes, it is dark out. So it is kind of like a self kind of perpetuating thing. So. Um, that reinforces What it does is it reinforces That it is the dark phase Do dark activities And we're getting again A lot less melatonin um, You know that we were In a more natural environment And that itself could have a real significant impact In fact the World Health Organization Lists artificial light as a probable carcinogen Yeah, yeah. Uh, Because the work that's been done Looking at the connection between breast cancer And melatonin is, It seems pretty pretty clear That you know, if you have um you, you know, there's some research that has looked at tumor growth in the in the presence or absence of melatonin and melatonin seems to really suppress it, where the absence of melatonin it'll it'll grow kind of un, unchecked. So um a lot of our health issues are the result of um basically a deficiency of
0: natural conditions. Yeah. Environmental mismatches. Yeah. So, again, like and again, listeners have heard this before, and the way I kind of all summarize it is that, you know, in, in the morning time, you want your cortisol to be high and your melatonin to be low, and obviously the blue light you get in the morning is the signal to your body and your body clock that it's morning time, it's time to get up. And then, as the day goes on, you want your cortisol to 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 drop off while concurrently your melatonin rises. And as you say when the when the when the light starts to dim and the blue light starts to fade out, we want to get into you know a surrounding that that definitely has a more dimmed light or sort of atmosphere, and then obviously finally into kind of pure darkness to elevate melatonin. So we want melatonin again to be highest at night and cortisol to, to be at its lowest at night time but again because of our modern world of technology and and all everything that gives off a blue spectrum so artificial light the ipad the ipod or the ipad the iphone what 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 essentially we're doing is we're telling the the penal gland that oh it's still daytime out and it's then it's, it's shutting off or it's extremely reducing our melatonin secretion and, and therefore we're not getting the melatonin that that we need to be optimally healthy because it's a, it's an absolutely crucial antioxidant, isn't it, melatonin?
1: It is, yeah, and you know um, the way that this information that we're talking about is usually addressed is like, all right, well, how do we get? Let's just let's take some you know, some exogenous melatonin. Let's yeah. take it by something. Yeah. The other way to look at it is this is just one thing that is taking place. Yeah, and it is a sig. It is a harbinger of, this, of the of of things to come, it is, this, it is a marker of the situation so you could actually try to put a patch over it or you could try to fix the situation mm. and therefore try to fix all of the other things that are taking place that you're not thinking about if you're just thinking reductively as, as melatonin is the issue yeah. yes, it's a part of it, but it doesn't kind of encompass the entire issue at all
0: I, I think another thing I just wanted to, to, to say to you, Dan, was that I always kind of uh, I kind of always like say blue light is like insulin, you know? It's kind of like when insulin was kind of like so bad, it's the bad guy, you know, keep your insulin low. And now all of a sudden it's like blue light is terrible and it's kind of like no, it's actually really important. Like you don't want to wear your blue your blue light blockers in the morning. That's not a good thing. So like it, it's still a very very crucial, you know, circadian signal. So I mean can you just maybe give a touch into that that you know blue light exposure is so important you know this idea of getting 30 minutes a day you know to help again with the sort of your body clock and, and to again give it that circadian signal and then obviously so that when, it, when, it, when we get into the evening that we can start to get our melatonin secretion and just get everything functioning properly yeah I'll take a, um, a, a
1: bit of a, a circuitous path to get there but I'll, I'm going to talk a little bit
0: about Dan's plan oh so yeah fire, plan, fire ahead
1: yeah, we want to help you live as an intelligent eater, an enduring mover, and a restorative sleeper. Right? These are basically aspirational concepts of things that you would want to strive for. So what is the restorative sleeper? The restorative sleeper wakes refreshed and feels alert all day, every day. Okay, cool. Yeah, I want that. How do, how do I make that happen? Okay, so in order to make that happen, we need to understand what are the determinants of good sleep. and. What determines good sleep is timing, intensity, and duration. And we talked a little bit about how just getting eight hours, but having the period where that eight hours is occurring shifts greatly from you know, night to night. That's not gonna give you the type of, that's not, you're not gonna live as a restorative sleeper. You're gonna have consequences of that. Yeah. All right? So two things to measure are getting adequate duration and then having a very consistent sleep period. So if you sleep between 12 and eight every day, you, try to, you wanna stay as close to that as possible. Right, so you know, 12 a.m. 12, um, to 8 a.m. So that's those two concepts we've discussed. There, um, intensity is in uh, the intensity of sleep, which is you know, the depth of sleep, the concatenation of different stages, having a very strong sleep kind of rhythm and pattern that's going to be influenced by uh, physical activity during the day, and it's also going to be affected by light, right? So, a restorative sleeper not only understands, okay, I you, you have a very clear idea and goal. I want to be in bed by this time. And that number is locked into your brain. And what that number does is it actually kind of counts backwards. And you're like, well, if I have to get up at 7.30 for work, then I, and I know that I want to get eight hours of bed, whatever that time is where you feel fully rested, then I need to be in bed by 11.30, right? And that is your, that's what we're trying to get people to do is is to establish a very clear bedtime goal and yeah that is super simple it's boring it's not something that is like the most exciting thing in the world but it is incredibly important right you're going to give your because it's so easy to stay up a little bit later and watch more tv you know there's the the health issue in our world is things that captivate our minds and attention either or or feel like responsibilities like you've got to respond to an email from work or you're going to watch another game of you know episode of game of thrones or you know you're going to play a little play something else on your phone something is going to make you say oh you know what i'm going to just go i'm going to stay up a little bit later and therefore i'm going to get 30 minutes less sleep than i would if i had just shut down earlier right that is what we're fighting against so that's kind of um so so well, I'll finish my thought now about the light, okay? So, light is affecting the time is when you actually feel like going to bed, and also then the depth and the quality of sleep. And what a restorative sleeper does is maintain smart light rhythms, day, evening, and night. Right? And the best, everything that we're trying to do with my company is simply trying to help you live a more natural existence in the context of the modern world. So what does that mean? Well. You want to get day evening and night day you want to get bright light right? so um bright intense light actually there's a difference between brightness and intensity um brightness is relative luminosity within an within an environment and what that means is that um a, the best way to think about that is if you have your iphone or your you know what your your phone in a dark room on full brightness it's going to feel so bright you can't even look at it yeah right but you take that phone out outside midday and you can barely even see your phone because so that you've gone into a much more intense light environment so brightness is the relative luminosity within the visual field Uh, intensity you can think of that as the amount of photons that are entering into your eye and if you're in an inside and dimly lit room or even a brightly lit room the the light intensity is somewhere between two and five thousand lux a lux is a measurement of light intensity you go outside on a brightly lit day and you have the light intensity is going to be up to a hundred thousand lux so think about that difference five thousand to a hundred thousand now imagine that that is going to the amount of photons that are entering into your eye and the strength of the signal to the brain so you want to get at least a half an hour of daylight exposure outside walking around sitting whatever um Just having uh, full exposure to light, and what that's going to do is serve as to kind of anchor your circadian rhythm. Without an adequate daytime light signal, your circadian rhythm is going to shift or drift a lot easier when it gets a lot of artificial light exposure in the evening, right? So if you work inside during the day, which most people do, and then you know you get out and it's evening where the light is a lot dimmer. and then I say you just go to a gym, and you know you're inside again. And then in the evening you've got your television on, you've got room lights on, and you and then you're you know reading your iPad or your iPhone. That's going to then have, and you're creating the conditions to have your circadian rhythm shift. And so instead of having um, all of these different processes within your body, again behavioral processes, um, you know sleep sleep and wake is a circadian rhythm itself. Um, but also cell cycle growth and repair processes, all of these things synchronized and coordinated so that it's doing the right thing at the right time. Instead, you're gonna have, kind of imagine a symphony that is playing completely out of sync, right? They're all playing their own part, but they're not in line with one another. And that's where you end up getting disease and problems, uh, behavioral problems, physiological problems, which carried on you know, continuously um, can lead to increased risk for diabetes and metabolic syndrome and cancers and all sorts of stuff we don't want. Um, and so the, like again, the, 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 restorative sleeper is going to say, okay, I'm going to get good sleep timing, regular sleep timing, adequate sleep duration, and I'm going to maintain smart light rhythm. So the right type of light during the day, um, or the, the right amount of outdoor exposure, um, it, or basically it's a minimum amount of outdoor exposure <laughs> And then in the evening, I'm going to dim my environmental lights. So I'm going to, you know, turn lights off around my house if I don't need them on. I'm going to put rheostats or dimmer switches wherever I can. So I'm going to be able to dim the light and keep it really low. Um, if I'm watching television, you know, you can now, this is where the the, the idea of wearing blue, blue blocker glasses comes into play. Um, the idea is that you can create virtual darkness where if you are blocking the wavelength, of blue light, which those um, intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, which are the cells that are responding to blue light, or responding to light that are communicating with the master clock, if you can block blue light to them, then they're not going to get the daylight signal, even though you can see, right? So you can be in an you know an artificially lit environment at night, and it's not going to have as much of a consequence um, if you're wearing these blue blocking glasses. That you if, uh, that you would if you were not right So the, the brain is not going to be getting a daytime signal at night even though it c- you can still see. That's that's the function. The goal is not to block blue light all, all day long. That is quite the opposite of what you want to do. You want to get as much blue light as you can during the day. Um, or not, actually that, that, that's not I didn't say that correctly. You want to get at least 30 minutes um, but certainly being outside all day is not a bad thing either, but minimum of 30 minutes outdoor exposure per day
0: great stuff I have a few other tag on questions to that but just something I want to make sure I say and this is something Danny said in his podcast and just to make sure I re and and you to reiterate this to the listeners is that would it be fair to say Dan that your circadian rhythm has an impact on like almost every physiological function and therefore has an impact on nearly every disease process yes yeah so I just because yes. it's just we're, we're almost an hour with this podcast and we actually didn't make that point so people could be like still listening going oh this is all interesting but does it really matter it's like yes it impacts like every single thing that you do yes yeah so yes so
1: when you think about um, and I'll and I'll make one point to strengthen that idea so as and I mentioned these cells before; these inti- intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells that are in the seventh layer layer of your retina. Yeah. They communicate via the retinal hypothalamic tract to the master clock. Right. So these cells get sensitized by light that's coming into the eye, the intensity and the tone of light, the spectrum, the the colors, and that will then send the signal to the master clock. And then the master clock will communicate with other cells in the hypothalamus that control pretty much all hormone control within the body, right? So under exquisite regulation of this system is um, all the hormones that are produced. Now imagine if it's not getting the right signal, the hormones that are gonna be produced are going to be altered, right? And it's gonna create a weird, different pattern that could be creating messages where the body is just responding to the signal that it's getting. But the res- but the signal that it's then giving or producing is then going to, you know, the body's going to respond appropriately to that signal. But the signal might, you know, might just be totally off, meaning, you know, you're going to be, um, you know, your, your, your core body temperature is going to be higher than it should be, which is going to make it harder for you to sleep. Your cortisol could be, you know, the pattern of that cortisol could be completely off, which is yeah. then control glucose regulation. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's, um, I get, a, I don't want to say annoyed, but. People talk about um, you know glucose regulation kind of in a in a strange way um, all the times and usually because it's they're, they're, they don't have uh, adequate understanding of, of circadian rhythms. Exactly over the 24-hour period, glucose is regulated in a very kind of uh, interesting way at certain times of day certain processes are keeping it either elevated or suppressed or you know they're doing kind of they're doing the right thing to keep it in the right zone for that time of day so during the day plasma glucose levels change right in, in where you have more of a kind of an episodic waxing and waning that is between meals um, at night however the you know glucose levels remain more stable and the way that that happens is that it's supported by Growth hormone that is produced in response to slow wave sleep, mm. and then later on in the night you have cortisol levels rising. Right, so we have less slow wave sleep and growth hormone um, in the latter half of the night, and cortisol levels start to rise. And what that does is then that keeps blood glucose levels stable where they should be. So you wake up with high growth blood uh, with the high cortisol, and that's actually keeping your uh, your blood glucose where it should be. So it's you know there's a lot going on. It's probably hard to kind of just take all that information in as a listener. Um, The point is, is that there's a very, you know, there's a, our body is doing something at the right time to keep things working well. And when we're not giving it the right signals, then things, it's just responding to the signals that are there, and that can end up leading to things looking really funky. And over time, that can lead to, you know, in the short term, that can lead to alter blood, blood glucose regulation and uh, basically like the existence of pre-diabetes from poor sleep and misaligned circadian rhythms over time that could lead to actual diabetes and cardiovascular disease metabolic syndrome etc mm. and so this is it the, you know you can't just take melatonin and you, know, you can't just do whatever that little fix is um, and and have that be kind of uh, the solution for everything I think what the best way to look at it is this is a signal of a bigger problem that's happening the, way to, the only thing you can do is really address the bigger problem and try to live more naturally in today's world
0: yeah like um personally myself i, I think I, i've like definitely helped fix or at very most at, at least improved greatly people's blood sugar regulation just through I- improving their circadian cycle you know you get those people yeah. i'm always tired at 3 3 p.m and they're like i need a sugary snack and i'm just kind of like what time do you go to bed at and they're like Oh, usually around midnight are you around bright lights yeah I was like okay we, we can fix this without you know it's, it's probably not even dietary thing it's probably more so just because of your sleep yeah uh, right. just a, a very interesting question or one that popped into my head and I, t- I was saying to Danny I was like I'm going to ask uh, Dan Paradis and see if he has an answer we know that so the the, the, the the super cosmic nucleus that that's a major player in terms of taking in that blue light and regulating the body clock how does that play in with blind people? And I, and that's a serious question now. So does yeah, yeah.
1: Um, it, it's a great question, and it, it's a, it's it, it depends on the degree of blindness. Um, so there's complete blindness where um, uh, somebody basically they're they're not getting any light signal to the retina at all. Partial mm-hmm. blindness is where you um, the person might have very impaired vision where they. You know, for all intents and purposes, can't see, but the the these intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, they're functional, mm. and so they have adequate circadian rhythms as long as they're getting they can they can maintain adequate circadian rhythms, properly functioning circadian rhythms as long as they're getting the right type of light. P- uh, fully blind people, they cannot, and so they end up with a non what's called non twenty four circadian rhythm issues. Wow. And there are new there's actually some drugs that are melatonin based that. Um, help these people maintain a more, you know, a, a pattern that is closer to 24 hour, uh, t- twenty-four hours a day, which then helps them kind of live in the normal modern society, because if you have a 30-hour rhythm then it, that's going to lead to really weird things over, like, let's say, the course of a week if, let's say, you know, let's say I had non-24 and you didn't and we start on a Monday with the same basically biological timing that within a week from now you know, my 10 p.m., or, you know, your 10 p.m. at night is not going to be the same for me. Like, it might, you know, it's, it, I'm going to feel like it's, you know, 1 p.m. in the afternoon.
2: Yeah.
1: And so that just ends up being really hard for somebody to then maintain, you know, a normal pattern of living, because um, you're, you're just not in the same time as everybody else. And so, yeah, that's a problem, and there are now drugs that um, can help with that.
0: Yeah, that's uh, amazing. And... The, another part to that question was, I I've been asking a few people around about this, and uh, maybe you you can shed some light on it. So we know then obviously blocking blue light at night time, um, from getting into your eye, and we can it is is very important, and we can achieve that through like wearing blue light blocking glasses, as we've already alluded to. But does blue light still not get absorbed by your skin by the cryptochromes? Does that still not signal that it's daytime in a certain way? Because my question to people is like when I travel, and I'm staying in a friend's house, and I'm trying to optimize my sleep environment or keep my sleep hygiene as close as it is at home obviously making the room as dark as possible but you know like i can't be like getting tape and taping up the, their doors because it pulls the paint off their doors so like there's still light getting into the room like how how that detri- like so my my bedroom at night is pitch black because i have i've got blackout curtains it's you know everything it's just i can't see my hand in front of my face it's black as black would be but when i travel like in a hotel i don't mind what i do in a hotel like people think i'm crazy my friends think I'm crazy but i actually just tape up the door like i actually physically bring tape to keep the light out how detrimental is any sort of like getting into your room and secondly if i was asleep and there were still like artificial light hitting my skin but it's not getting into my eye so i'm wearing an eye mask is there still a detriment to melatonin production on that do you know that
1: so there's been a, um two studies that are, that are looking at um melatonin, the, the influence of light hitting your skin on, on melatonin and circadian rhythms and um, one study was looking at light exposure on the back of the legs
0: yeah.
1: and uh, whether or not that did influence um, your circadian rhythm.
0: That's, that's the one study I've seen though.
1: Yeah. Another one was actually using um, intraoral, so in your ear cavity, light so it was basically exposing your ear to, uh, to light and then looking to see if that had an influence on melatonin production and, wow. and circadian rhythms in it. And it showed, it showed that it did. But I think those are studies that absolutely need to be reproduced. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the mechanism is. So there could be one, um, but it also could, they could just be false positives. Yeah. And um, now if you think about it, a more natural environment was not completely black, right? There's, there's moonlight, um, you know, there is some light that is uh, avail- you know that would be present in a more naturalistic environment so
2: complete
1: complete darkness I don't think is required for great sleep and healthy circadian rhythms now a lot of people report really really excellent sleep in a completely black room and I and'm I actually sleep with an eye mask on um, and that it just helps me you know I, I, I like it I prefer it but um, it's probably not necessary. So I think it's a really good idea to remove uh, electronic light signals. So whether or not you know, if you have a some sort of whether it's a clock, whether it is some sort of electronic that has some sort of you know like indicator of power or something, if that's bright enough and it's you're able to see in your room, um, it still might not be enough to actually shift circadian rhythms. Um, within your, uh, you know, because you have to have a certain intensity of light entering into the eye in order for it to do that. So underneath a certain intensity threshold, it's just not going to have much of an effect, even if you can see it. But, um, but I would still, it's, you know, while I wouldn't overly worry about some light entering the room, I would actually do, like, for example, I'm staying in a hotel, um, right now, and the clock that's near the side of the bed, it was emitting a pretty, pretty bright light, um right next to my face so I, I actually blocked it and uh, it was definitely darker so while I don't overly worry about sunlight entering the room I do I do my best to kind of block out the you know the electronic light where I can um, and then I also like I said I wear an eye mask and earplugs which uh, just puts me there's I don't know there's something about it that's part of the behavioral so when I put those on it's just like alright I'm going to bed and I know it And so there's a kind of a conditioning response to that yeah. And then it also kind of blocks out. There's something called your arousal threshold, which is uh, how much certain environmental stimuli will will wake you up, and whether that's sound or light. And I tend to have a pretty low arousal threshold, which means that it doesn't take that much sound or light for me to, you know, wake up to it. So the way that I handle it is just, you know, putting in the earplugs and the eye mask, and then I just don't worry about it. So you know, some some of that uh, responsivity to kind of the light and sound is maybe worry. Um, and so in a way it's just like a technique to say, okay, I don't need to worry about it. And it makes me more relaxed and sleep more deeply. Um, but you know oftentimes i wake up in the morning and the eye mask is off of my head <laughs> so <laughs> it just helps me fall asleep and then at the end you know by the end of the night it's not on me
0: and i'm sleeping fine that's actually that's like me with my earplugs and was like i wake up and i'm like where are my plugs on and they're just like underneath my back or something so they yeah. kind of they kind of help me go to sleep and sometimes they just fall out Then there yeah. yeah yeah
1: and i think it's great to do you know do a little experimenting um find out what the conditions are. For, in a room for you. So it's, you know, it's cool, quiet, comfortable, and dark, you know, keep your room at a temperature that's, that's, you know, low, but comfortable. So somewhere between, you know, probably 65 and 67 degrees, 64, 67, which is, which is cool. Cool. Yeah. Um, try to get it around that temperature. Um, warmer temperatures can make it hard for your core body temperature to lower, which is necessary in order for you to go to sleep. So, um, that can you know somebody could be experiencing insomnia and really rest asleep and it could just be an environmental temperature so that's a big one um cool you know dark doesn't mean pitch black but um I also don't think there's a negative consequence to a pitch black room so I know a lot of people just love that and um if you want to test it out and see if you sleep better go for it um dark or quiet you know if it kind of depends on where you live um you know there's an interesting thing where it's not that you you're you can't hear when you're sleeping so you can hear just as well but in order for sound to get into you know to kind of arouse the cortex and wake you up it has to go through uh this the a, an area called the, the thalamus and so that thalam the thalamus is hyperpolarized during sleep which means that it's the um the state of uh, responsiveness of that system is uh it's um Let's see, I'm trying, I'm going to try to frame it in non-kind of science words, just so it's easy to understand. Mm. And it's just kind of a sensory block, yeah. so it becomes it make, it, it's harder for a sound that you hear to make it through that blockade to wake you up. Now, um, you could live next to a train station, and once you, you know, the first couple of weeks that you live there, it could wake you up every night. Once you live there long enough, your brain can be like, okay, I don't need to be alert to the train coming by. I've heard that a thousand times. It's not an urgent situation. Yeah. And you could sleep right through it. It,
0: it no longer what, it no longer perceives it to be a threat. So. That's right. Yeah. Where
1: you could hear a baby crying in the other room, the decibels of which are a lot less than the train, and it could still wake you up. Mm-hmm. And so there's some sort of gating, there's some sort of decision-making that's taking place subconsciously to say, is this a threat or not? Do I need to attend to this or not? Um, and so that you know that everybody has their own kind of arousal threshold that is that is set at you know like a different uh level, and some people can sleep, you know they can sleep through the train on the first night and other people are gonna wake up to you know the sound of a falling leaf outside. um And so you know, you just you, it's good to play around with these things. what what creates what are my conditions for optimal sleep? The one thing that I worry about is when people, one thing that is a really uh, kind of a, a disturbance of good sleep is worry. So if you worry that the conditions aren't perfect and yeah, you're yeah. not going to be able to sleep, then that can actually create more anxiety. So play with it. Realize that, you know, you're going to be able to sleep uh, with, with a little bit of sound and with a little bit of light, and it's not going to be disruptive. So just kind of find your sweet spot and, you know, and then try not to worry about it.
0: Dan, do, how much longer do I have you for? Because I just have one or two more questions. Yes, yeah, let's, let's do it. Oh, brilliant! Uh, so, uh, a a question that that I've I wanted to ask you too is what what's your opinion on naps? Um, I think
1: naps can be great. I think that na- you know the the value of naps is conditional. I personally try not to nap a lot. You know, in some situations, and I do try in others. So, if I'm a little sleepy, uh, one day for you know for whatever reason didn't get great sleep, then. The decision that I make is, do I want to get a nap now, or do I want to try to go to bed a little bit earlier? Mm. Um, because w- when you when you nap, you wear down sleep pressure, and that can make it a little bit harder to go to sleep than at night. And so if I am really, really sleepy, and I really need a nap, then I will take one, but I'll try to do a power nap, which is maybe 20 minutes. Um, also, if I'm sleepy, but I have a lot of writing to do or I need to be productive for the next, you know, 10 hours or so, then I'll also try to get a nap. Um, if I've, you know, not been getting enough sleep for a couple of days and I've really built up some sleep debt and it's a weekend, occasionally, you know, I, I'm pretty on top of my sleep now, but this happens. Um, with usually if I'm doing a lot of travel and um, I might get a, you know, an hour or two nap on a Sunday and really catch up. Mm. And that feels so good <laughs> if I've not been getting, you know, if I'm behind the eight ball a little bit. Because yeah, the, yeah. the effects of sleep can accumulate with, it's called sleep debt. So um, I use that occasionally. But mostly what I try to do is to say, okay, I recognize that I'm tired. And I'm so I'm really going to try to get into bed earlier and get a, a kind of a, a full night's sleep tonight. Because the last thing I want to do is get that, you know, 30 minute nap or, you know, whatever. If I let's say I got an hour nap in the middle of the day, that can mean that instead of going to bed at 10.30, I'm going to be going to bed at 1.00. And you could get into a cycle that way. So it's, con- it's kind of conditional, and then you've got to read it and say, okay. But I, if I do a nap during the day, it's usually a power nap, which is 20 minutes. Um, and the way that I do that is I will put my earplugs on, I will turn off my phone, um, I'll put my eye mask on and I'll set I'll set an alarm usually for 25 minutes. So I'll give myself like a little you know entry, and then um, whether or not I sleep or not, I will just lay there and I'll try not to budge. And um, uh, you know I, sometimes I sleep, sometimes I don't, but I always feel more alert after I get up.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah. Just the uh, the next thing I, I just wanted to ask. We, we we kind of spoke about this idea of. You know, di- the you know, okay, everyone's slightly different in terms of when they get their sleep in. You know, so the the question of chronotypes. I heard this conversation: Are you a night owl? Are you an early bird? So I'm gonna try. Hopefully, I'll make I'll make this question make sense. So obviously, there's gonna be a little bit of variation. In some people, you know, like so. From from what I read, it seems that you know, so, some guy could go to bed at ten and get up at six, get his eight hours, and he feels great. For someone else, it may be like eleven to seven. But my question is then. Where is that sort of line of where like okay two to ten is not good because you're missing out on some critical hormonal activity is that making sense like where where is that diminishing return because I think on Danny's podcast you were saying like around four p.m. you know like you, you know something peaks in your body in terms of a very important like hormonal activity I don't know if it's detoxification or whatever it was or. You know, so like, wh- where is there a diminishing sort of like, you know, if you were saying something, I wouldn't go to bed any later than midnight, or I wouldn't go any, you know, earlier than seven a.m. or whatever, or, or seven p.m. or whatever it is. So actually, that timing
1: can range, uh, you know, uh, across the twenty-four hour period. What I what I mean by that is your biological timing is um, has a you know very large uh, chance of being influenced by the the kind of the natural environment, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, but you can artificially manipulate your environment to a very, very great degree. And so you could go to bed at 4 a.m. every night and then sleep until, you know, uh, midnight the next, excuse me, um, noon the next day. But if you maintain, if that's your schedule, it's odd. And um, you're kind of having to work against the natural signals a little bit, but you could still do it.
2: Yeah.
1: Right, so a good example, okay, a good way to think of this is... um, I used this example a little bit earlier this week somewhere. I don't remember. But um, my best friend and his family, um, they live in San Francisco, too. They just went to to Paris and then to London. So when Dave and his family arrived in Paris, their biological timing was still set to San Francisco.
2: Yes.
1: Right. So it was completely mismatched from the clock time of, of their location. Over the course of the next five to seven days, because they're taking in light into the eye it's going to shift the clock so that their biological clock over you know it, o- over seven day period is now going to be aligned with their you know the the, the the timing of Paris right so that you can see that your timing can shift completely depending on you know the uh, The kind of the environment that you maintain.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: Now there are, there's this concept of owls and larks where an owl is, um, you know, they're going to wait, they're going to, you know, you're going to actually be staying up later and then larks are going to wake up early. And so we all have this chronotype where within an environment people are going to feel more natural. They're going to, you know, there's those that are going to be like getting up at six every day. They're wide awake. They're ready to go. And then there's those that are going to really feel more alert in the evening. Um, and that is, you know, that is a real thing, that is a real thing that you need to control for in studies, and, um, but even then, right, I mean, the person that is a, an owl or a lark, when they go from San Francisco to, to Europe, their, their entire timing can still shift, yeah. right? Now, they, again, they might feel different, like their peak productivity might, you know, still be in the morning once they adjust, or, or at night once they adjust, so that is part of that chronotype pattern but the timing of your rhythm can totally be shifted by the light environment that it's exposed to
0: yeah yeah. because just uh, now listen uh, this isn't a great resource but just I remember on Sisson's uh, blog he was saying with the chronotypes with the night owl versus the early bird he was saying that the night owl's are still more at risk for developing disease because they're still uh, they're still more desynchronized than you would if you were if you were a lark essentially so but in saying that too i get what you're saying because there's there's a book called the circadian prescription by sydney baker and a question in it was some guy was like you know I, I work all my work is at night like during the night what can I do and he just said what you said he said you can fool your body into thinking that you know so let's say if you were going to bed at 4am he was like make 4am you're 10pm and then make yeah. make noon your seven a.m. He was like, you just manip- artificially manipulate your light cycles, and and even though it's not ideal, you'll still adjust to that. I guess though it's 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 more if you're it, 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 what's more detrimental is that if you're working a day shift for four days and then a night shift all of a sudden that screws it yeah. that screws you up so. Would it be would it be would it be is it more of a case that as long as you have consistency I, I guess that's what you mean by when you say timing intensity duration timing means also the consistency that's the same time over and over again so if you yep. were if you were consistently going to bed at 4 a.m all the time getting up at noon and you yep. adju- and you adjusted to that that's far more far less sorry far less detrimental and even probably okay to a degree than say if you were like on a day shift for four days and then a night shift for two days and then back to a day shift that's obviously far more detrimental is it
1: Nailed
0: it! Absolutely right. Oh, great! No, that you know, it's really good because chronotypes is just something that personally I, I needed to learn a little more about. So, that's it's great to to get that. That's brilliant, Dan. that was great clarification. Just yeah, the, and
1: it's interesting. Chronotypes can shift over the lifespan Oh, so,
0: absolutely! Yeah.
1: Yeah. So somebody, you know, I I am actually this way. I was a real night owl for years. I would just um, that's where I was productive. That's where I felt the most alert. And and now you know, I just turned forty one. I feel like I wake up you're
0: 41 you're 41 then I am yeah you, I'm sorry I'm just saying that because I honest to god and I'm not just saying this and people are going to be like what a fucking lick arse but I swear <laughs> to god I thought I thought you you honestly look about 30 thank you man it's, asleep. it's, it's, all it's asleep, yes, the sleep it's the sleep yes it's all that healthy living <laughs> that's great that's great what you were saying so you, you shifted then obviously more to an early bird was it over the years yeah yeah and
2: I think it had
1: um You know i don't think i could i could just grasp at some straws about what was causing it Um, but whatever the shift is noticeable so i I pretty much spring out of bed now um it's not super early but usually by seven at the latest and uh, but i feel very very alert Uh, but i also have a more regular rhythm so you know i'm married with a baby and um, that's different when I was single and going out, and so yeah. the typical. You know, it's very, it's very common for people to, you know, they have one pattern. Another type of shift work is just a, a is a young single living, which is, you know, for most of the week you're going, you know, you're, you maybe stay up till eleven or midnight, but then on Friday, Saturday, maybe even Thursday, you know, you're going to be staying up till two, and so you're you 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 you're actually doing through like a little mini shift work by adjusting your clock 3 hours that's why monday is completely you know stink even if you've been getting 8 hours yeah, yeah. you've shifted your rhythm so the body say the body wants to then wake up 3 hours later yeah. so you know people don't reach their they don't kind of feel back to their normal selves until maybe wednesday you know yeah, and then yeah. it's that uh just knowing a little bit about this I, it's too bad but you know i wish uh more social activities would happen earlier, you know, it's funny, I remember when I was younger, we were just like, all right, we're going to go dancing, you know, at 11. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just sit around and wait for six hours before, you know, we'd go out. Uh, versus just like kind of going out and getting back in a reasonable time
0: I would have felt a lot better <laughs> yeah I know what you mean yeah definitely it's great stuff yeah, so, yeah. You, you mentioned that it's funny I was reading your blog too you you were kind of summarizing your 2014 year and you were saying that having, yeah. having a baby kind of settled your, your, your sleep cycle and it's funny too because what you said and I always say that to people too parents are always like oh you know when they go oh you have a kid now you know best of luck to your sleep lots of caffeine and I'm always like you know if you went to bed the same time the baby went to bed you, you, you'd you all synchronize together the, the, what, what happens is when people have babies they, they put the baby to bed and they stay up and they stay watching yeah. the, and it disturbs the child Like, but just uh, you, maybe you can touch on that too but just a question off the back yeah. of that a question off the back of that and I, I'm wondering if you have any information on this and I, I, I'm supposed like even logically the, the answer to this would be yes but obviously when a woman is pregnant with the, with the baby her circadian signal that she's given to the child, does that set the baby's circadian rhythm for its first few years? You know, is, it, is, it, is that like is the baby going, Oh, this is night time, this is daytime, like is that having an effect? So when the embryo, when, when it's an embryo, like is is the mother's day night cycle is kinda of setting the baby cycle? Yeah, the
1: baby's circadian um, system is completely dependent on the mother. Oh, um
0: yeah, yeah,
2: great.
1: uh and then it continues to develop with dependencies to the mother postnatal after baby's born. Um, and then with light exposure, um, over the first six months, the, the, uh, own internal rhythms will begin to develop, but it's very much dependent on the mother.
2: Brilliant.
1: Brilliant. Um, yeah, pre, you know, uh, what the baby's still in the womb and then even after it's been born. And actually you see, uh, people, uh, babies that are, that are <clears throat> born prematurely, um, they're usually put into the. In ICU, and they're kept under 24-hour light exposure so that doctors can come around and check on them.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, what they found is that had real massive disruption to Obviously. the development of the circadian systems.
2: Yeah. Big and
1: thing. children that were born and under those sorts of conditions ended up having uh, less favorable outcomes for health and also for school performance um, for years to come. You know, that's, for
2: That's
0: amazing. That's amazing stuff. That like it's amazing. Yeah. It's, yeah. That's amazing. Least healthy places is a, is, a, is a hospital where it was you know for it's it's funny though because there, there's a documentary called what, what Babies Want and listen like I, I'm not one of these like conventional medicine is the worst thing in the world type yes, people you know right, I'm, I'm not I'm not one of those better. people either like you know I'm I'm very yeah. much I- integration but the the whole the whole sort of idea that was like how traumatic uh, you know births can be for babies in, in hospitals like, you know, they're yanking them out they're they're slapping them they're injecting them with stuff straight away whereas yeah. they they were kind of saying in a more sort of like Home environment. Even though like you can still have medical assistance it's you know it, the baby should be gone straight to the mother and it should be held by the mother straight away and knowing that, that the mother's there and the father's there straight away and just you know basically bonding with the mother for the first few minutes instead of being taken away straight away to an ICU unit. But it's funny now you also mentioned the light thing. I mean, it, but logically that makes so much sense
1: well microbiota as well so
2: yeah
1: you know i'm like you i'm not anti mainstream but a lot of uh, you know but a lot of those decisions are based are financially based
0: decisions so
1: we're seeing a lot more c-sections in the united states
0: yeah Um, yeah. that's massive impact you said on the microbiome
1: yeah huge impact so you know um as the baby will move through the birth canal the bacteria from the mother will enter into the mouth of the child, and yeah. that will colonize. That will that will be basically how the, the baby's microbiome will begin to be colonized. Yeah. And so when I mean, you look at the baby's microbiome, which is the gut bacteria, um, it looks very similar to the mom's. Mm. But if it's born by C-section, then Doesn't what happen. happens is the bacteria, it's like the, the baby can be first colonized by the bacteria that's on the gloves, that's period, the bacteria that's in the room. It's yeah. totally random. It's... Yeah. Um, and we're seeing that that has an effect later in life on all, th- all things related to health as well mm. And so there's just um, you know there we, 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 we've been a little arrogant in our under- you know in terms of what we think we know and we haven't been as respectful to the idea that there's a lot of signals that our body is extremely sensitive to that we're not, you know, adequately heating, and uh, yeah, it's funny, you know, like the, the kind of the hippies had it right in a lot of ways, just trying to live more naturally. But it was uh, oftentimes the rationale that made people, you know, not pay attention because it was just so wacky. But yeah. there's a lot there of just say, you know, there's and these are just a few examples, but you know, um, like we talked about today, light, like light microbiota sleep none of this has been a part of any models of health over the last 10 or 15 years but we're we're gaining an appreciation of how these things will influence our health and they have a massive impact on it yeah yeah. you know so my my goal is not to try to say okay listen give up all modern luxuries you know leave your job live in the woods um it's not that i don't think that's practical a lot of people aren't going to do it but rather it's say, okay what are the determinants of good health what do we know about, you know, good light, you know, excuse me, sleep, physical activity patterns, you know, exposure to microbes, exposure, you know, relationships with one another, things like that. And then try to keep it simple, mm-hmm. do a little tracking so that you can actually stay mindful of how you're living. And, um, uh, but keep that in mind, you know, keep, live, live in a more natural way where you can, you know. So when you're thinking about light, you could try to remember a lot of details or you could think, okay, well, during the day, there's bright light, get light exposure. That was the conditions that our, moder- that our ancestors experienced. Yeah. In the evening, lights dim, the tone changes. At night, it's darker. Do that. Make sure that your environment is mimicking what's happening outside. And then take that example and then tr- spread it to just about everything else that you can. Um, and it's kind of, you know, ultimately what we're trying to do is help people walk around with the right mindset.
0: Brilliant. So just, uh, the, I know that the parents listening will be like, you never finish asking them that question. So with your, your, your child, was it a boy or a girl you had, Dan, by the way?
1: He's a little boy that 98% of people think he's a little girl. <laughs> he's got
0: long hair. <laughs> I know what you mean. But just for, for the parents, uh, what, what exactly, what sort of um, what sort of like things did yourself and your partner do to sort of like, you know, get, get uh, synchronized with the circadian rhythm and, and have a good night's sleep? How, how did you work around that?
1: Okay, so Desmond is teething right now. So oh, this is last night. Last night, we went to bed at about 10 o'clock, mm. um, pretty early. Desmond got up in the middle of the night and was up for about an hour, crying and wailing and kicking. And um, so we were up. Um, and then I, we ended up sleeping until about 7.45. So that's almost 10 hours of time in bed.
2: Yeah.
1: And now, if I, if I you know, I, I, I do really well with eight hours. Right? If I, just gave myself eight hours, if I went to bed at midnight, then I would basically, have been. Get, I would have gotten seven hours, because yeah. one of those hours would have been disrupted. So the idea is when you're a parent, you know, a, a new parent where it's likely that your sleep could be disrupted in the middle of the night, because the baby needs some attention, or you know, for, for whatever reason, then giving yourself the same amount of time that you gave yourself prior to the baby in bed is probably going to be inadequate. Yeah. So you got to spend more time in bed. Yeah. Um, since we were winding down with him, um, you know, Samara will read to him at night, and, you know, so we just would all get ready for bed, and then, uh, you know, I'd read in bed under under low light, like a, by the way, a Kindle with, you know, that's backlit, or even your phone with all the brightness turned down in a dimly, rit- dimly, dimly rit- lit room is really not going to be disruptive to your circadian rhythms, not much, mm. um, versus reading a normal book in a brightly lit room with all the lights on that's that's actually a lot different
2: yeah
1: so um, that's what we do and then as soon as the you know my teeth are, you know my teeth are brushed my clothes are out for the next day so as soon as the urge strikes the typical pattern is that when people start to feel sleepy they start to get ready for bed yeah and at that time you're moving slowly and yeah. you know it's easy to like t- it takes an hour to get into bed because you're just you know, lumbering around slowly, versus being ready for bed. And, yeah. You know, getting a little reading in, and then as soon as you does, I just want to shut. You just put down the book
2: and turn off the light
0: completely, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. You you wrote that one of your articles, and it's funny. It's exactly what I tell people to do. You know, in that they're all like, you know, but I can't fall asleep." I'm like, "Yeah, because you you need to get ready for bed one hour before you plan to go." So that's what I tell people. they you know, like, "One hour yeah. before you plan that you want to be asleep, that's when you should be starting to get ready to go to bed." Because exactly, this is exactly what happens if you wait yeah. and you're tired it's just like oh, you get up and then you get that second burst of wind which you don't want you want to be prepared in bed reading so. but anyway continue yeah.
1: yeah yeah that's it I mean it's real simple you know so the rest of it is good smart light rhythms day evening, and night have a good target date target time that keeps your timing inconsistent and gives you adequate time in bed you know like for example with dance Plan, we track you think was is kind of interested in sleep that i am i'd want to know every single thing that's happening to my sleep but not at all because i can't control that what i want to do is control the behaviors that help get me good sleep and so it's simple you know and so i keep focused on my timing and duration and um and that's then basically the end and then getting good light during the day and that's that's it
0: Brilliant, great stuff, Dan, I, I literally just have one more, and, and then, uh, you, you, we can tell the listeners then exactly about Dan's plan. Because my, my my last question will be about like you know if we were to summarize everything, and then I'm sure you're just gonna like to talk about the exact dance plan and the uh, and the ideal way program. Just something else for the listeners, for the people out there that want like something on caffeine. Dan Dan covered caffeine and a greatly in Dan in Danny Lennon's uh, podcast. So I mean I'll link to that so you guys can listen to his answer on that, and. Um, the, your article on on the unless you want to say something about it there Dan so feel free. Uh you know that's no, okay. Uh it's it's a um. You
1: could go with, listen to Danny's. It's it's, you know, it's a topic that um. You know, takes a couple minutes to get into. So yeah. yeah. So what was what was the podcast or the uh, the blog one? Yeah,
0: uh, the you you recently um did one and I I called Steph. It's Stefan. His second name GNA. Is it? I you pronounce Stefan. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. right, yeah, Stefan Guine. Steph- I call him Stephen at the start, but really Stefan is what he's called, Stefan Uh Yourself, Stefan, and Rob, you, you were speaking about, you know, the hypothalamus, uh, and you, had, you wrote a great article there, and it was very in- intriguing about the different type of dice that the, the mice were on. And, yeah. uh, like, it was so odd that the ketogenic came out top, but then the high-fat diet or what they quote as high fat was like one of the worst but then again like if you look yeah. at that it was high fat with a with high enough carbohydrate in it too but maybe just just touching that and then the ideas around the hypothalamus and, and the, the you know the, the the very big role that the hypothalamus seems to be playing in the likes of obesity you know with leptin and then obviously insulin sensitivity and then you, you know you you reference uh, john Bro-, Bro brobeck with his research with the rats back in the 30s and 40s so uh, yeah. I, ju- I just I found out that whole article very very interesting now I had not listened to the podcast yet but the article was great so maybe you just want to tell the listeners about that
1: yeah sure so um, there's, a, there's a fascinating study by McNay and Speakerman where they um, they they take a group of mice and they put them on different diets mm. uh, and they had them on one, one was high proteins well first what they did is they actually made the mice obese, so they induced, diet-induced obesity, and you can reliably do that with a high-fat diet in in mice.
2: Um,
1: And from there, then they randomized, they put them on different sorts of diets, and one of them was high-carb, where a higher proportion of the the food is from uh, from carbohydrate, one on high-protein, one on just normal standard chow one on high-fat, and then one on a ketogenic diet, which was super high-fat. And then they had two different types of conditions. So imagine those diets, but one where they could eat as much as they want. So it's called ad libitum. And then the other one where they, um, they did uh, with uh, calorie restriction. So they, they had to eat amongst those diets, but then they, were, uh, they only could have 70% of the calories of the, um, what they would usually eat um, under normal conditions. All right. So, forced calorie restriction,
2: mm.
1: and they looked at the outcome, and I think some of the it's a long article, so I'll just kind of talk about some of the highlights. But um, one interesting finding is that calorie restriction produced weight loss reliably, and so pretty much every group had an equal amount of weight loss, but they didn't all experience the the same effect to in terms of with weight regain. A lot of them would get would gain the weight back, particularly the group that was on a high-fat diet. So they had the worst rebound experience after they went back onto a normal diet. So they gained all the weight back and more. And what was interesting is, um, like we were were talking today about the hypothalamus and the cell group in there called the suprachiasmatic nucleus and how it influences, um, you know, it's the master clock. This other group, the arcuate nucleus, is a center of cells that has, um, where a lot of, where you can almost think of it as a fat thermostat. Where the body fat, the level of body fat that you that is um, controlled, is is controlled in this center, and um, the health of you, you almost think of it as like a seesaw. There's some neurons that are actually promoting fat gain, and there's some neurons that are promoting fat loss. And depending on the signals that this center is receiving, it'll 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 try to maintain an equilibrium. So that um, you know, while weight may fluctuate day by day, you, you know somebody who's weight stable is going to you know stay around. Like I'm 185 pounds, I'm gonna I, I stay around that level daily. Mm. Um, so yeah, some days I might be 188, some days it may be 182, but generally like the average of my weight over the course of the year stays pretty pretty constant. And that's because it's it's not because I'm controlling my calories; it's because my the calories are controlling both in terms of intake and distribution, et cetera, are being controlled by the system. So the health of that system is very important. And there are, it's thought that there are dietary factors that can damage the system, making it less sensitive to um, the signals that keep everything in balance. And what the result of that is a system that is, has disproportional strength. It's asymmetrical. So the side that is promoting fat gain becomes stronger than the the side that is promoting fat loss. And what that happens is there's a ratcheting up of your body fat level. And that might be part of the modern condition. And the high-fat diet did exactly that, or at least the results of the study suggested that, yes, this is what's causing that. But yes, the really interesting thing is that once once a diet was high enough in fat to start to produce ketones, then it had a different effect entirely, um, where the ketones seemed to have a very favorable effect on the health of the thermostat, the fat thermostat. Um, so animals lost the most amount of weight spontaneously. They had the best weight loss maintenance, um, and so it seemed to be very, very favorable, favorable condition for weight loss. So the conclusion of my study was, you know, I, I wrote all about the kind of the details of the study, and then I talked about, you know, my own thinking, my interpretations of it. So I recommend people go and read it because it's long, Um, but it's pretty. It's detailed and um, yeah. So take a look. But uh, you know, the high protein diet did really well. The high carb diet did really well, actually. So you know, ketones might be good, not be you know. So a ketogenic diet might be good not because of the absence of carbohydrates, but just because the presence of ketones. But just by producing ketones might, you might, it might, well, you do need to get rid of all the carbohydrates in order for it to, to start to produce ketones yeah. virtually, right? So, um, but the problem is, is a lot of people might do a, a ketogenic diet, and then with the idea that carbohydrates were, are what was bad, then they go on to a high-fat diet, which is, you know, if you were to interpret the study, that would actually be the worst thing you could do. So a good thing to do if you wanted to use a ketogenic diet to lose weight is do a ketogenic diet but then maybe go on to a higher carbohydrate diet for weight maintenance. So if you want details, go there and read it and I go through every little section. But um, yeah, it was a, it's a very, very interesting study to help us think about a lot of the apparent paradoxes of our, our, our you know, diet. So uh, and then Rob, Stefan and I talk a little bit about, you know, just some thoughts on weight loss. We were, we were in that article, at the bottom of that article. Podcast that's linked, and we were basically just responding to um, questions that people submitted uh, on on weight loss, all things related to weight loss, etc., and our, our our ideal weight program, which Stefan and I developed. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Take
0: a look at that article I yeah I like I'll, I'll, uh, I'll definitely link that in the show notes so the article is called why dietary fat is fattening and when it's not so it's it was an interesting reading I was reading it going oh hmm, this is one thing I will say though is like that you know they say the high fat diet like it was 45 percent fat 20 percent protein but it's still had 35 percent carbs. so like there was still a lot of carbohydrate concurrently with the fat so like you know high fat diet to me I would see is good, yeah, uh, good. Um,
1: and I, I'd comment on that if if a higher carbohydrate diet wasn't fattening, then you know why would then it would, you know you, you wouldn't think the, um, carbohydrate at that level would be really the problem. So it seemed to be the fat. But what I also comment on is that fat is a chemical class, and there's a lot of different types. So yeah, talking about yeah, it as yeah. one form monolithic thing
2: yeah, yeah, you're is right.
1: not accurate. Yeah. We know that for example, monounsaturated fats are not going to, um, they don't seem to have a negative effect
0: on, uh, kind of scarring and, um, like it, stress uh, markers uh, with, yeah.
1: of the, of the hypothalamus where saturated fat actually does certain types. And there's also a wide variety of saturated fats. There's, you know, there's saturated fats from coconuts and then there's saturated fats, longer change saturated fats from things like meats. So we know that saturated fats from animal products, um, palmitic acid, they do actually, um, in both humans and animals, seem to cause elevated stress response within the hypothalamus, which could be problematic, which basically means that that is it's causing the damage to that For fat thermostat that, over time, means that you could be gaining body fat.
0: And is, is it that is, is sorry to cut across you, yeah. is that something to do with, like, eicosanoid um, modulation, prostaglandins, is it something to do along those lines?
2: Well, you
1: know, um, possibly cause those are just, you know, local hormone cell signals. So they're, they're kind of involved in everything, but whether or not, you know, so there might be like an archetypal pattern of, um, uh, of, you know, a kind of a, a carcinoid production that, uh, is emblematic of this, the, the stress markers that you see, but mm. you, you do see microglial formation, which is markers of stress. You see increased, um. Prevalence of endoplasmic, endoplasmic reticular stress, which is yeah. an organelle within cells. Yeah. Um. So the, the stress level rises there, um, which is kind of a, a marker of an insensitive type of a ins, insensitive fat thermostat. Um, you also see a characteristic pattern of inflammation, where you have a. Uh, this is something called IKK beta and nuclear kappa factor beta yeah. signaling. So you have high levels of inflammatory signaling and that leads to leptin insensitivity, insulin insensitivity. It might be kind of the, the problematic pattern that leads to the stress and the insensitivity that leads to the weight gain. So that might be what's the problem that is
0: promoted by the right the certain types of fats yeah yeah definitely anytime you read about inflammation or leptin you, you always see nf kappa b and tumor across the factor are just always like those two things are always associated yeah, yeah big time uh, yeah absolutely uh, just for the listeners to so another really good post on dan's blog and we didn't get a chance this is called that uh, the the, the per- this is this the purpose of sleep where it's the video you linked to with um Jeff Lilf Is that his name Jeff Lilf Is it Yeah I, I think so I
1: think that's how you pronounce it Yeah
0: like it was really good Just like a little capture from it The restorative function of sleep May be a consequence Of enhanced removal Of potentially neurotoxic waste products That accumulate in the awake brain It was very interesting It's only 11 minutes long Very interesting talk It was actually Super interesting Yeah it was actually crazy Like I, when I watched his talk today It was just like There was not one minute Where he went Or one second Where he went Um, uh, He was just like I perfect know. Yeah did you see that I was just like how is he just like Keep going so, he nailed it. Oh, it was he, impressive. Yeah, it was impressive, yeah. So, Dan, uh, finally for uh, the listeners, you know, they'll all be saying, okay, this is an hour and 40 minutes or almost an hour and 40 minutes. Like, <laughs> like what? Like, uh, I don't care. I, I'd go on for three hours. I love, absolutely love this. This, is, this interview has been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. Oh, Just nice for, like, the kind of, like, you know, people, give people to walk away with something, you know. So, like, you know, what, what are the cliff notes? What are the summary? What can they do from whole not even just sleep but lifestyle perspective to improve their health and and I know now like this is also a platform for you know to obviously plug Dan's plan and um, and obviously talk about your um your ideal weight program as well yeah you know
1: um because we mentioned a few things uh already um in terms of this like how we are viewing like what we're trying to do but right now I feel like there's it's uh, there's becoming a greater awareness on the more natural pattern of living through ancestral health research, uh, the popularization of certain ideas like paleo, which I have, I have issues with paleo, but the idea upon which it's based, I think is, um, you know, the ancestral model for, for living is, is actually really, really useful. So, um, it's the application of, of the popular diet that is kind of, um, can, all, can look really funky at time. You know the paleo donut, et cetera. It's like no, <laughs> you don't get it.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, yeah.
1: And so, but you know, paleo the diet that there's no reason why other models can't come out of this ancestral methodology, and mm. that's what I hope happens. You know that it's it's it, in some ways it's it's actually driven a lot of awareness there. It doesn't have to perfectly match the science, but it's got to be you know closer. Um, and is often think thought of as like you know, uh, no gluten, high high meat, high fat, and coffee. You know somehow that's paleo, and um, that's actually not the best representation of the idea at all. So um, anyway, that's one idea. That's uh, there's this awareness now that we are we are experiencing a, a kind of a, a deficiency of natural factors in our world. And um, we need to find strategies that help to help us live more naturally. And then there's a movement of quantified self which is self tracking, which is really just um, you know I give a, a presentation in Boston at a health 2.0 conference a couple of a couple of weeks ago and uh, there's been this kind of ongoing debate about whether or not you know quantified self can help Change behavior, and if it's if it's actually you know good or not, and that you know people continue to use it? And I I, I actually said, okay, well, can can these Fitbits, et cetera, can they modify behavior? And then I said, well, is that actually really the question that we want to ask? It's can they modify behaviors that matter, right? Oh, okay. Can they modify behaviors that matter in a meaningful way? All right. No. Okay. What is that the right question? Can they modify behaviors that matter in a meaningful way forever? Right? Because let's say you could you you know you can affect behavior, but it's, it's for six weeks. It's not really a solution. And so I think the the most fair question for all of these technologies is, can they be a part of a valuable health ecosystem that it promote important behaviors in a meaningful way forever?
2: Yeah.
1: Right, And it may not be in every population, but if it can do that in some populations, then yes, then you've got a tool that is you know really worthy. And I think absolutely, the answer to the question is absolutely yes, if designed right. And in order to design it right, you can't just... Be creating a behavior change system, you have to be respectful of the type of the way that you're trying to change the behavior. And so, what Dan's plan has always been trying to do is saying, How can we use these new technologies that help us be more mindful about how we're living, you know, in the modern world? Because you could try to maintain a level of alertness or vigilance to everything all the time, but it'd be really nice if we had some tools that helped us out because we have tools that are, you know, I call them countervailing forces because there are tools that are out there that are actually always trying to get you to do the wrong thing, you know, play play one more game of angry birds right before bed. Um, And these things, and I say that kind of jokingly, but these things, can they're they're compelling, right? I mean, they've got serious behavioral science behind them that is driving us to do, you know, to engage with them. So we need forces that help us counteract that, that keep us mindful on on, on kind of the way that we want to live, that shape how we want to live. Um, and that's that's entirely what Dance plan is trying to do. So I developed a behavior model called the loop model to sustain health behaviors. and um, you know the executive summary of it is is basically why why should you do something? like what is the what is the message behind um, you know uh, the, the, the argument behind why you should do something? Um, how do you do it? So what is the programming? what does it look like over this this idea of you know the, that I've like I'll' you know, for example like, vitamin D is important, right? Okay, so we could, yeah, I tell you about why it's important. Then, how do you do it? All right, well, how much sun exposure? How much How much vitamin D should I try to get in my food or is through supplementation? Am I doing it? You know, is there a way that you can measure that the amount of sun exposure
2: mm-hmm. that you're getting?
1: And then, is it working? So it's, why should I do it? How do I do it? Am I doing it? Is it working? And then, the last part, is it working, is, you know, occasional measurement where you could then look at your blood. You could look at your vitamin D levels in your blood and see, yeah. is it within a healthy range? So, that's just... Um, that philosophy, that model, I'm trying to operationalize within the tool. So the idea is that somebody that uses the tool is, getting, is staying mindful of their lifestyle, their their daily health practice is being simplified by sensible, intelligent daily programming about what to eat, how to move, things like that. And then there's also some other longer-term measurement that you can then say, which is not implemented yet, which is then to say, okay, I'm keeping a general general trajectories around health markers that matter so um major relaunch uh probably late summer and i'm just Brilliant. extremely excited about
0: the tool yeah yeah i mean, I mean you know you're definitely someone very similar <coughs> to my top process a lot of things and I, i'd be very similar in that you know try to be as objective as possible as often as possible and i kind of like the way you you know you're trying to be as objective as possible with things and you know it, also in one of your blogs you were, you were saying that uh you have it actually in bold right in here. I actually feel more energized when I walk more than ten thousand steps a day. And you spoke about the the Fitbit, and yeah. you were saying you know you, you prefer to charge over the surge and all that. But that that that's another another thing. This idea of just getting out, walking, taking steps, being outside, getting a bit of daylight onto your skin too. But if we were to summarize just for 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 the because we kind of got into a lot of areas. But say just for sleep hygiene, if we could summarize, maybe just sleep for the, for the people are we essentially saying you know control your light environment when it's when when it's dark outside make your own surroundings at least at the very least dimmer uh look into maybe things like you know maybe right red or amber light bulbs or even get into more sort of candlelight settings even but definitely just have a dimmer setting maybe look into blue blockers for well i wouldn't say maybe definitely look into blue blockers for your eyes at night time maybe uh Set, set yourself one hour before you go to bed, so as as you alluded to, you're not tired and and then trying to go to bed you're actually tired and in bed, ready to fall asleep um and then, as you alluded to, too, you know, make sure that your timing and intensity duration stays pretty consistent. Would that be pretty good for for your sleep hygiene
1: yeah it's very good and and what I would then say is is track it
2: um yeah definitely you know, so yeah. Use, if you can use yeah. dance
1: plan to track your sleep because um what we think we're doing is not often what we're doing.
2: Yeah.
1: And um, so, doing all of those things and then having just a very light touch in terms of tracking, it's extremely simple to track because we're not trying to assess every aspect of your sleep because, well, you know, it's a longer conversation, but the tools to do that, unless you're trying to diagnose a sleep issue, then your sleep is probably fine. You just need to do the things that get you good sleep. So, let's yeah. focus on that. Yeah. Um, and in and even with all the knowledge in the world, you know, if you had a, a Ph.D. in sleep, it's still useful to have this system that helps kind of keep you honest with how you're actually living. Right. So um, it's it's easy. It's got to be easy to do, frictionless enough. But then to be able to, you know, go back, you know, what I would say is read that read that article, my 2014 health report, and then think you should have everybody who's reading and listening to this you should have your be able to to monitor your own health practice in the exact same way and you can. So it's not like there's gonna be these huge fluctuations day by day. Maybe, you know, maybe there are and you need to address that. But mm-hmm. even if there are not, it's really nice to know this is how I lived in the last year. Because sometimes you could identify patterns that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to, and sometimes you can just confirm like, hey, I'm doing this well, great. You know, it's worth it to for me to spend literally ten seconds a day to just kind of engage in this way, which helps keep me mindful of kind of trying to keep my scores, you know, in the right spot. Yeah. So it's um, you know, it makes a ton of sense to me. That's why that's why I, you know I'm building it and uh, I feel really good about
0: recommending it. oh absolutely, and and uh, like like you said on Danny's podcast, it was funny, you know, because I, I released the product well last year, and sometimes like when you're kind of. Putting your products out there, you you nearly feel a bit like, oh, you know, I'm a salesman or blah blah blah. But yeah. like as you you know you said, listen, like if there's genuine integrity and intent behind it, and you've actually put your heart and soul into it, you know, well then like essentially, how dare you not put it out there? Because it could help so many people. So you know like you're you like if you fully believe in what you're selling you you absolutely need to fully believe in selling it then and like i've only been I, i've only been nothing but impressed with Dance plan i think why i'm so impressed with it too is that it, there's just such good simplicity to it which i really really like um and even with your ideal weight program i love the three words you're just like knowledge direction feedback like it's just so like i just love that real simple to follow because people just need simple because i know that from a coaching standpoint so I thought yeah. I thought it was just so so excellent so, um, yeah. Thank you. Dan, Thank I, I definitely, oh yeah, and, and it's just on objectivity. Uh, personally, myself, I, I, am I'm, I'm a strength and conditioning coach, but for I used heart rate variability for eighteen months, like just uh, so that was kind of one thing I integrated. I don't know if you've ever looked mm. into that as well. So I found that really good from an objective standpoint to you know to, to see where my readiness was for my training sessions every day. So your dance plan kind of you know it kind of reflects that similar type, type of thought top process in terms of your overall health and, and sleep obviously and everything else.
1: We, we are going to integrate it um, oh I, was, I, I
0: knew going. it I knew it
1: <laughs> yeah we are going to integrate it yeah our variability is great um you know so i i there's a variety of different dashboards that we're going to be creating so that you have some health there's 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 lifestyle tracking which yeah. is kind of like your daily pattern there's performance tracking and then there's health tracking which is
0: more the trajectories that's why i said hrv so, yeah i had a, I had a yeah. feeling i could see it fitting in there like but i didn't know if it, if it was like you know would it would it be nearly too much for the general person but not deadly, deadly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sounds so good Okay, yeah, that, uh, Dan. This is you know going on two hours. This is uh, It's funny. I, I I was interviewing a guy called Christian Thibodeau a while back, and and he was on. He the longest podcast was like an hour and fifty, and I think we've just broken that barrier now. So this could be the longest podcast we've done. But this is absolute, absolutely brilliant like so like thank you so much for coming on and sharing knowledge and like i even have more questions but like i think a part two would be would be more justifiable and and obviously when when the new launch comes out of like that plan 2.0 we'll definitely have you back on and uh, for, for everything uh, for the guys listening here everything's gonna be linked dan's website those articles the video everything there and, and the podcast with stefan and rob wolf so that'll all be in the show notes so uh, Thank you. Dan just stay on online for just an extra like 30 seconds so I say goodbye to you offline but for the listeners guys keep uh, leaving reviews on iTunes and go to upmentorship.com help support the show and thanks for listening so guys take care I'll talk to you soon and stay strong